No. Excellent. Yeah, that's not. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm an alcoholic, drug addict. Uh, I suffer with various degrees of mental illness, depending on, you know, whatever. Uh, the time of day, uh, how much sleep I had. Some days I just wake up with it. I'm just other days, like today, I, you know, I found myself humming the theme of Sesame Street, and that's always a sure sign I'm happy, so I must be happy today. I did. I got to see my great-grandson today, so that, that always lightens me up, and, and I had an active day today, just uh, on the move from the get-go, and um, that's good for me. Uh, I have uh, a tendency to be sedimentary. Something like that, sedentary, maybe. Anyway, um, yeah, my sobriety date's January tenth, nineteen ninety-five. I was first exposed to AA as a teenager in uh, nineteen eighty-six or nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, August sixteenth was my original sobriety date, nineteen eighty-five. Um, I lasted twenty-two months. Frank, your your uh, fan is inter interfering with you. Oh. Can you? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Is that better? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Mar I know Marcella hates that. And I always turn it down for her. Um, yeah, I'm living I'm, in uh, Tampa, sorry, Florida. Sorry, Well, that's all right. Uh, I'm living in Tampa, Florida right now in a RV camper. And uh, I don't run the air conditioning on the generator just because it's really loud and I have a dog and as soon as he goes out the door to go outside it lets all the heat in so it seems kind of silly to air condition this camper to have the dog let all the heat back every couple minutes he's, he, he has a hard time deciding where he wants to post up uh, yeah so I came in as a teenager I was court ordered um, Before that, you know, the, from the get-go, I believe I was an alcoholic, a drug addict. Um, I loved the effect of alcohol from the very start. Uh, and I never wanted to be sober ever again, anytime. I wanted to be under the influence of something. Um, you know, as a, you know, like 12, 13-year-old kid, it was easier to get marijuana than drinking. Um, I did do... A lot of experimenting with household chemicals, gasoline, paint, rubber cement. I was a big fan of glue. Off of that, um, you know, just anything I, I could get my hands on to alter my state. Um, I don't really remember much before like 11, 12, and I'm sure there's reasons for that. Um, nothing I've ever been able to put a finger on, but yeah, there's there's definitely I'm all a huge amount of neglect in my childhood. Um, I didn't go to the dentist until I was like 12. And, uh, you know, I paid the price my whole life for that. Um, but it turned out, you know, when I was like 25, 26, I found out the big family secret that I, my father that raised me wasn't my real dad. He was over in Vietnam and he came home to a pregnant wife. And... My mother would never tell me who the real, my real father was. It's not like it was a one-night thing because he was around for a while. 
she just refused to tell me and, and I don't know what why or you know she just never shared that with me you know I'm sure she has a reason but you know, now she's got dementia alcoholic dementia so you know she doesn't remember last week um, yeah so you know I grew up with that big family secret but it's like all my siblings knew um, but I didn't and, and they treated me accordingly you know I wasn't you know one one of them was you know whatever and you know yeah you know, I lived with my father for a while the, the father that raised me and uh and then I moved in with my mom when I was like 12 she had remarried some other dude and when they after they got divorced and um You know, it was just a, it was just a, a, you know, I don't know. Like my whole, my family of origin is really a mess. It's just a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, a lot of criminal behavior, gambling, um, high-speed driving, high-speed motorcycle racing, um, a lot of illegal activity. Um, and those were my role models, my older brothers. I had three older brothers and an older sister, and those were the guys I looked up to because I didn't really have a father figure. Um, Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I always felt like, you know, I was a new kid, but I bounced around from school to school when, you know, through the divorce and everything. Um, you know, I, I made the best of what I could. And uh, once I discovered alcohol and drugs, man, I didn't care about anything else. Um, and it did, it cut, it, I got in a lot of trouble. I could never control my intake. I, I liked having like a six beer buzz. You know, I just liked having like six beers in me and feeling good and I could just never stay there um it was like by the time I got to that level I already had like three more shots waiting to hit me and all of a sudden I was drunk and you know blacking out and I thought that was normal and um it really didn't matter because it just came with the territory that's I was willing to accept all that just to, for the effects that that I got and the feelings I got from it um it was a complete transformation. I was Jekyll and Hyde uh, for sure. Um, I had to change. And I actually, one of my friend's mothers told me I was an alcoholic when I was 15. We were over at his house partying, and she was down in the kitchen. We were up in his room in the attic, and uh, I came downstairs, and she said, you're an alcoholic, Frank. I go, what? She's like, I was married to an asshole like you. you you've got to change. You are not the same kid that came in here a half hour ago. And uh, she was right, you know, but at that point, you know, you could have called me anything you wanted. I, I wasn't listening to anybody, taking advice from anybody. I didn't really have any kind of respect for authority or anybody else. Um, I thought everybody drank and did drugs, and if they didn't, they were missing out. Um, I just had a really warped perception of life, and I was a very angry, angry juvenile delinquent. And uh, I got in a lot of trouble. And like I said, I was quarter day. And I came in and uh, I had to go to seven meetings a week for a year. So I was at a meeting every night. I had to ride my bicycle there because they suspended my driver's license for my first DUI. And, um, but I, you know, I sat in the back, got my slip signed, tried not to interfere with anybody. And uh, then this Irish, or English guy, Henry, was leading my home group, turned into my home group later. 
and he had gone in front of the judge I was waiting to go in front of. And here was a guy that could help. You know, here was somebody that I should talk to. Here was somebody that had experience with my judge and may be able to give me like the inside scoop on this guy. So I went up and talked to him after a meeting and uh, after he led. And he turned me on to this other guy who was the secretary of that group. And he was like the, the golden child of AAA. You know, he was a CPA. He had gotten in trouble early in high school and gotten sober and went to college, got a CPA and um, just did everything right. So he became my sponsor. And um, I got hooked into AA. You know, and I, you know, when I first got a copy of the big book, I found myself in there. I related to everything in there. I, I knew that this was, this has been my problem because I, you know, I was, I was very suicidal when I came in. Um, not because I was forced to come to AA. I was just ready to go. <laughs> my life was just, I just couldn't handle my emotions. Um, I went through this breakup and, you know, I was homicidal and suicidal and, and just off, off the chain. And AA really saved me. Um, and it gave me that hope that, you know, Maybe I'm not just a misfit or a bad kid. Maybe, you know, this is my problem. Maybe I'm just an alcoholic and a drug addict. And uh, so I did. I got sober. And, uh, and it was really good for me. I went to lots of meetings and I really embraced it and really enjoyed it. And it was like a foreign world to me, you know, coming from where I came from to have somebody, this guy, Ernie, I'll never forget. Um, Ernie was a Vietnam vet. And, uh, he talked about sniffing glue from the podium. And back in the 80s, you didn't talk about drugs at AA meetings. You know, with alcohol only, don't talk about drugs, especially not from the podium when you're speaking at a meeting. And I thought, man, this guy knows. Finally, I can relate to somebody. You know, so I went up and talked to Ernie, and uh, he became a, a really good friend of mine. But one night, you know, prior to all that happening, um, you know, I went up and shook his hand. It was like tradition to, to shake everybody's hand at the meetings. Back in, I got sober in Cleveland on the west side in Lorraine County. And uh, that was just, you know, you just went around and shook everybody's hand, you know, introduced yourself. That was just AA back then. That's what you did. And, uh, you know, I, I shook Ernie's hand and, you know, I was, of course, looking at the floor. And uh, he said, how you doing, Frank? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. And I went to walk away and he didn't let go of my hand. And I it just like broke my, you know, my whole routine of skipping through meetings and not being noticed and not having to talk to him. And he like wouldn't let go of my hand. And I, and I looked up at him. And I'm like, what? He's like, no, Frank, really, how are you? And it was like the first person I'd ever felt like that gave a shit about me. And it just broke, it broke through everything. It just really transformed my life um, because I had never felt that kind of uh, just unconditional caring. You know, it's like he, he didn't expect anything from me. He's just concerned. He was like looking like a big a big brother or a father, you know, looking after somebody. And uh, he was looking out for me. And, um, and that's, you know, been my AA experience, you know, all these years. Yeah, so I, I lasted like 22 months the first time. I met a girl in AA. I, I could tell you where it was. I was at this the barn meeting on Avon Tuesday and she walked in and she had this golden light around it. And I was like, Oh my God, who is this? And, uh, you know, we got together and then I got her pregnant and, you know, I was 19 when my daughter was born 
And, uh, you know, I was living in my mom's basement, working eight hours a week, you know, going to AA meetings at night with some 40-year-old guys. We'd go out for coffee till two in the morning after the meeting. And, um, and, then, and there was a huge group of young people back then. And I was just really lucky for the place I was back then. We had a lot of fun. We had picnics and a lot of AA. We had an AA softball team, just a, a bunch of really cool AA things going on there. And, um, yeah, so I have my first nervous breakdown when I realize I'm going to be a father and I'm, I'm going to have to change my whole life. And I start working 60 hours a week and then I start getting stressed out and I cut down on my meetings and things are just getting really tight. And, um, my brothers go to Indianapolis every year for the time trials at the Indy 500 and they meet my dad. He comes up from Oklahoma, the father that raised me. This is before I found out he wasn't there. Yeah. And uh, I decided I'm going to go on this trip with these guys and I'm going to party one weekend out of the year and just get rid of all that stress and get it all out of my system and then come back and be sober. And, uh, you know, I was high before we left the, the, the neighborhood. You know, I was getting high in this gas station bathroom. And then we went down to Indy and I got hammered and, you know, the same stuff that always happened. And it just, it was, you know, total chaos with the brothers and, you know, wandering around drunk from the bars and, yeah, so I came back and A wasn't the same. You know, I had I had broken the the big rule and I had partied one weekend and I didn't tell anybody. And I just kept going to meetings and I just kept feeling uncomfortable. So finally I just grabbed my that golden child sponsor and I was like, Hey man, when I went to India I got high. And he's like, Dude, I got a bag in my car. So it turned out my sponsor had been smoking pot this whole time and not telling anybody. So <laughs> Out of all the people in AA I could have told to come clean with, I picked the worst guy because me and him were just off and running. I mean, we I would say I was going to a meeting and we'd get high and go to the movies or we'd get high and go golfing or we'd get high and go fishing. And my wife thinks I'm in AA, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I was out. I was out about seven years. You know, I stayed away from drinking. I just smoked pot for a long time. And uh, then I got a cold and I started drinking cough medicine. And I had done cough medicine all through high school. That was like my my way to get through high school. I had kept it in my locker and, you know, they they didn't expel you for drinking cough medicine because they never caught you. But if you came into school drunk, they would expel you. So, and it was a perfect combination of alcohol and drugs. You know, it was a nice, I just really liked it. And um, so, yeah, he takes, my pot smoking sponsor takes me to this bar in downtown Cleveland when the flats first started. Jack will know the flats, hey Jack. And uh, so we're at this bar and I got this little bottle of medicinal cough medicine in my pocket. And I'm like, this is dumb. Just give me a rum and coke, you know, because that's really what I wanted. And uh, and it, it was like I'd never stopped, man. It just, it was like I opened the floodgate and I was right back to it. And I came home and like announced to my wife that I was drinking again and, um, and it just, you know, I by now I'd had a couple more kids, and um, I'm growing pot in the basement, and <laughs> it was just, it was a ridiculous situation, and uh, just insane. And, you know, it's like my my father-in-law, who was a very scary, he was a Golden Globe boxer back in the day, back at Starkweather in Cleveland, and he was a bad dude back in the day, and uh, you know, but he was like old school. He was like, you know, if Frank wants to come home and have a beer after a long day at work, he should be allowed. And all, of course, my family, 
they just like welcome me back with open arms like oh it's so nice to have you back drinking again we missed you and uh so i had all the support and here's my wife thinking no this is a big bad idea don't let frank drink this is a catastrophe and then you know i got all these a buddies from the time i was there and they're like frank you know come on and i'm like no man i tried that sober thing once i didn't like it and um you know it, it had me uh, my thinking had done a complete reversal and a was the last place i wanted to go you know and uh so then things just kept getting worse and then i'm drinking around the clock and then i'm physically addicted and now i'm waking up you know after a couple hours and and sweating out of my skin and, and drinking to fall back asleep or pass back out however you want to phrase it um i'm drinking over the sink and the because so, I know I'm going to throw up the first one anyways and I'm drinking the flat warm beer that I passed out with because I knew I was just going to waste it anyways um, and I lived like that for a long time and um, yeah then my my wife just finally got fed up one Saturday we got in this big argument and she said I'm calling the police and you know I'm growing all this pot in the basement and it, it's obvious man when you open that side door all you smell is marijuana <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I better go because I don't want to, you know, go to prison. So I, and I had a motorcycle and I had a pickup truck and I thought I'll be smart. I'll take this bicycle and, and I'll leave on the bicycle and, I, and I'm hammered. Man. And the more I ride, the more hammered I get. It's like everything's buzzing through my system. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to go home and, and change bicycles because the one I was riding had flat tires. And it was just too hard. And I, you know, I'm fucking hammered. And, and, and I'm going back to the house, and here's the police car in the driveway. And then I see my wife pointing at me and telling the police, there he is right there. <laughs> you know, so now, now I'm on a parade with these police chasing me in their squad cars. And I'm on this bicycle with flat tires, hammered, trying to outrun them. And, it, you know, and they're like, talk, it was a lady cop, and she's talking to me out the window. She's like, Frank, we just want to talk to you. We're not going to arrest you. And we're concerned for you. And I was like, all right, you promise not to arrest me and I'll stop. And she said, okay, I promise. And they stopped and they arrested me and uh, took me to jail. And they took my driver's license away. They gave me a DUI and a bicycle because they taken the word motor out of the vehicle code. So now it was any vehicle you were on. So now, you know, I tried to be so smart and I still ended up losing my license. And of course I went to court and <laughs> I'll never forget, man, I was... I, I used to like check myself when I was out drinking. Most of the time I drank at home by myself in my basement workshop. But on the occasion where I'd be out drinking, I would go to the bathroom in the bar and I would kind of check myself by how I stood at the urinal. You know, if I was swaying or I could get a gauge on how, you know, if I'd had too much to drink yet or, and that's how it was at court. And I went to the bathroom at court and I'm swaying in front of the urinal and I'm thinking, Oh fuck, <laughs> they're going to know I'm drunk. And, uh, so, yeah, I got court ordered back to AA, and I, I came back, you know, this is the last place I wanted to go. That was my thinking. And I was drinking myself to death, and I knew it. And AA was the last place I wanted to go. That's my disease. My disease wants me dead. It wants me alone. It wants me isolated. And, uh, you know, I, I, I came back in, and you guys saved me again. Um, and... Yeah, that was, uh, let me see, it was Lakewood Men's Beginners. It was a Monday night, and I went home 
and I had tapered off the drinking. It took me a long time. I was drinking like 16 beers a day plus whatever liquor I had. So I had to taper off. So I, then I went to 15 beers a day and then I went to 14 beers a day. There was a, you know, some days I'd go 14 beers for two weeks, 14 beers a day for two weeks because I just couldn't make the next step, you know? And I finally tapered all the way off and I was smoking weed just to, to get out, go help with the withdrawal. And uh, so I go to this beginner's meeting and, and I left there and I went home and I flushed all my weed down the toilet because I knew I couldn't, as much as I didn't want to smoke it, as much as I wanted to be sober, if I had it in the house, I was going to smoke it. And I'd proven that over and over and over again. So I finally just had to flush it all down the toilet. And uh, yeah, that was January 10th, 1995. And that began a whole nother journey of getting sober and, and working through the steps and you know it's like the whole god thing um you know i would speak at speaker meetings and i would get done and people would say frank that was a great story but you really left god out you didn't talk much about god and i just didn't you know it wasn't that i just fuck i didn't miss it <laughs> i didn't you know do it on purpose i just it's not a big you know and that's not something i relied on at the time or believed in um but they just had that message that, Frank, if you just keep coming back, you'll get it someday. Someday you'll be a believer. Someday, if you just keep coming. And it just never came. And I, and I tried. I really did. I tried to be a believer. And I just, there was some of those things I just couldn't get past. I was like, no, that's fucking bullshit. And, uh, but, you know, AA carried me through all that, you know, just hanging out with the guys and, you know, I was busy. I was active. I made coffee. I was chair. I would be secretary. I was treasurer for years. And and I had Monday Monday night was my home group, and Thursday night was my home group. So I went to those two meetings religiously. And my phone's overheating. Sorry. And uh, <clears throat> and then I'd pick up other meetings during the week. You know, so I and I was always happiest when I went to a lot of meetings. And um. I eventually did get divorced and I was a single dad for a while and I would take the kids to meetings and they, I'd take them coloring books and they'd sit in the back. And, um, they knew all my AA buddies. I can't think of anybody that I'd rather expose them to than people in AA because I've met some of the coolest, greatest people in the world in AA. Um, and, and I can't tell you how many times, there's one time in particular, I sat down in a meeting and this girl came and sat next to me, and she was the only person in the world that could understand what was going on. She knew everybody involved, and she just, it was like, it was just uncanny how how that worked out. She was there just for me to help me through that whole situation. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been through a lot uh, in sobriety. Um, I went through this terrible breakup. I, after the divorce, I uh, got involved with this girl in sobriety who was sober. And, um, man, she just really taught me how to love. And I really opened up. And, uh, and that breakup was really, really hard for me. And you know, my my dad was buried in the cemetery. He, had a, he was a life Marine. And so they had this military burial. And I would go to his graveside at night and uh cry because there was like nobody i could i just never i was never a guy to cry on somebody's shoulder 
and I would just sit at his grave and cry, and it just like opened the floodgates of years of whatever. I just wasn't never a crier, and it just started coming out uncontrollably. I'd be sitting there sobbing, and then I'd go and work the next day, and then come back the next night and do it all over. And then one day it was done, and I got there, and nothing else came out. And uh, yeah, so I went through that whole grieving, whatever lifelong um, healing. I, I don't know. I, I, I had a friend that was a Native American and you know she kind of adopted our family and we all got into that. And we did Native American ceremonies and sweat lodges and um, so my kids grew up with that in the NAA and um, you know I'd, I'd done some processing and sweat lodges and, and you know done, she was a, a counselor when I first met her. And um, so she was very professional as far as, and she was very wise too for her age. And, and I don't know, it all just seemed to work, you know? And, and so that's what we did for a while. And um, I processed a lot of stuff there. I mean, I tried to do the inner child stuff back in the eighties and I got into CODA and ACOA and um, SLAA and, um, I had a sponsor that said, you know, we're going to do an inner child med meditation so you can heal your middle your inner child. And, you know, I was willing to try anything, you know. And so we did, and um, like he took me back and, and introduced me to my inner child, and I bailed. I just left. I was like, I can't. I just couldn't handle it. And, uh, you know, we just we were just really unqualified to be doing that kind of stuff. I mean, we were just fucking kids, you know? And uh, so, yeah, that, that's about all the work I've ever done on that. Um, you know, and I, I, I had a brain aneurysm in 2009. And, uh, you know, they gave me a 10% chance of surviving. It was in the circle of Willis, which is a really dangerous area in the brain. Um, but I heard it. I heard it pop, and I was just laying in bed watching TV, and I heard this pop in my head, like your neck popping, you know? And then it felt like blood was running down the back of my head. So I reached back, and I was like, oh, fuck, that's on the inside. And then I broke out in this huge cold sweat, like a, a, a colder sweat than I've ever experienced. And I had to run straight to the toilet. Everything was just coming out. And I was like, shit, my body's shutting down. I think I'm having a stroke, you know? So I called 911 and, and, uh, and I tell them and they send out the fire trucks and the ambulance and I'm sitting in the driveway in a, in a lounge chair or, you know, lawn chair. And uh, they come up and say, no, you know, you just got a headache. I said, look, man, I've had migraines and headaches. Now. You need to take me to the hospital right fucking now. I mean, and the hospital was only five minutes from my house. I was going to drive there, but I was afraid I'd nod out and kill somebody, you know. So here I have to argue with these paramedics that take me to the hospital. And they take me in and scan me, and they're like, fuck, he's got to bleed. He was right. And, uh, so they life flight me to another hospital and do the surgery and, you know, save my life. And, um, you know, there was a lot of recovery to that. I had a lot of left side nerve damage. And, um, you know, but they exposed me to drugs in, 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 in surgery. They gave me some Dilatin IV, and the nurse is like, boy, he really likes that. And my kids are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> He hasn't done drugs in a long time. And, uh, you know, but I knew my disease was active. And the last thing I ever wanted to do was drink again. And I have a healthy respect for the disease I had. 
and I do not fuck with it. So I was going to meetings. I had a, like a hairnet on my head because I still had stitches and staples in my head um, because I had needed to go to meetings. And I just had to get back to that. I, I was afraid not to. Um, so, yeah, I had to walk with a walker for a long time. And, um, you know, but everything seemed to heal. All right. I seem to be okay so far. I did have a, an infection come out of it um, while I was down here in Florida. And I had to go have um, the first surgery. They cut a big bone hatch in my head, you know, took the bone out. Did the, they put some clips on my bleeders and put the bone back in. But while the bone was out, they got exposed to staph in the hospital. So they stuck a staph infected bone back in my head. So then I, they sent me home like that. And then I got a staph infection. And um, that almost killed me. And then they took the bone out and put this titanium mesh in because they couldn't reuse the bone again. So then I had this titanium mesh. And it turns out that attracts bacteria. So when I was down here in Florida, it swelled up. And uh, so they had to take the titanium mesh out. And the infectious disease doctor down here said, Frank, you know, don't get that mesh again. It just attracts bacteria. And that was MRSA is what I had that time. And uh, he said, go to Cleveland Clinic and get a plastic. So that's what I did. But I had to wait seven months to get that. So I had no protection on my skull for seven months. I had just big gaping crevice in my head where my skull used to be and I had to wear this stupid helmet and it was really embarrassing and it was really dangerous and uh you know it's a scary stuff you know but I managed to, to survive it and um I actually recovered at my ex-wife's house she took care of me with my daughter my daughter was living with her and once I got out of the hospital I went to her house with her new boyfriend and uh and they got me back to to health and before I until I came back down to Florida um yeah but both my kids are sober uh my son's got 14 years now my daughter just recently got sober four years ago after a, a very traumatic loss of her mother her mom got cancer and it was just this fucking horrible experience we all went through and I mean it was fucking horrible watching all that happen and uh I had gone back up to Ohio and um, was there to be a part of that. But man, it was fucking horrible. Um, yeah, and so my daughter collapsed at the wake and uh, we took her to the hospital and her alcohol level was 0.4. And I was like, boy, that puts me to shame. I think the most I've ever blown was like a 0.24. And she was at 0.4 and she was functioning. She was walking and talking before she fucking collapsed. I was like, oh my God. Um, so yeah, she's, you know, she's down here in Florida and, uh, I came down here after the COVID thing because I'd never met my great grandson and, uh, because of COVID. So I came down here and to catch up with them and, and, uh, to visit my mom, you know, like I said, she's got Alzheimer's and, and then my brother, um, had some health issues. So I stuck around and ran his landscape business for a little while until he got back on his feet and then he had a hip replacement so I did that again and um, now I don't really know what I'm doing other than like trying to help my daughter out down here I've been fixing her cars and uh, like today I picked up my great-grandson from his daycare center because my granddaughter doesn't drive um, but it's like I haven't worked since COVID and uh, part of me is really ashamed of that 
And part of me is like, fuck, it's amazing that you've managed to stay this long without working. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm at a, at a point now where you know, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. I would love to travel. I bought this RV um, during COVID and fixed it up and drove it down here. And that was a whole big shit show. Um, I, I had a job lined up in Tennessee and that's where I was going. When I got there, the guy had joined that New World Order thing, and so that shit came that job. So I just like, well, I'm halfway to Florida. I might as well go down to see my daughter. So I drove down here, and I haven't left yet. So I'm parked in my mother's yard, and I have an extension cord and a garden hose. So I'm basically camping in my mom's yard in this camper, um, me and my dog. And um, but you know, like I said, I'm here with my granddaughter, my daughter, and my great grandson, my mom, and you know that's that's a whole nother whole nother thing or alcoholic um dementia but she's not angry so i'm really grateful for that i, I know a lot of people that i've heard a lot of people that got dementia and it's turned into angry people and she's not like that she's happy it's like i took her to the casino because she loves casinos my stepdad was a big you know high roller and uh that's something she can do she can sit at a slot machine and play slot machines and um, there's just no long term, so short term is okay. And um, so you know, it's like I get to see her every day, and um, she's 85 now, and um, shit, she's in better shape than I am with all the weird stuff I got going on. Um, I was working in this factory in Ohio, and I got exposed to something that just tore my lungs up. There was this um, aluminum parts; they made parts for transmissions, and uh. Something, something got in me one day, and it was like drastic change. It's night and day with my lungs, my breathing, and um, I still haven't recovered from that. So I, I have a shortness of breath issue. I don't know if it's COPD or what. I just went and got all checked out, and my lungs are clear. And I've been a smoker my whole life. You know, I, I quit when I got to Florida because I couldn't breathe because the air is so thick. Um, so I quit smoking cigarettes, but I started one day. I thought I could go have a cigar, and that would be okay. And now I'm... A daily cigar smoker so, so that didn't work um so that's not helping um yeah so i don't know where i'm going i don't know if i'm going to get a job down here i would love to get out west in the motorhome and just see the country that i've always wanted to see um you know the mountains and all that but now you know it's going to be september october you know i don't want to be driving cross country in snowstorms and fucking bumfuck kansas or iowa you know <laughs> nebraska um but and it's about to get really nice here you know i suffered through this terrible hot summer in this fucking oven of a camper and uh now i'm looking forward to enjoying the weather down here um i just got my golf clubs already i'm gonna try to pick up golf a little bit and uh i'm an avid fisherman so i'm gonna do some of that but as far as face-to-face -face meetings i haven't gotten to any down here, um, I was, I, you know, back in the 80s or 90s, I should say, really, um, A wasn't really keen on medication. And, uh, you know, I, it was like I wasn't really sober because I was on psych meds. Um, but it turned out what was happening, I was getting these full body adrenaline rushes for no reason. It's like there was no emotional. I'd be just driving, I'd stop at a stop sign and I'd get this full body adrenaline rush. And, you know, I got a motorcycle that does 180, 
and it doesn't give me that rush. These are just spontaneous full body rushes. So I go to the doctors and they're like, well, you know, we think you have a panic disorder or maybe it's like a PTSD from your brain aneurysm. So they put me on benzo, some on a lorazepam or Ativan. And I was on that for like three years. And uh, man, it just wiped my memory. My memory is shit because of that. But, you know, being on that, I didn't feel 100% comfortable with meetings. So I just kind of got out of the habit of going to meetings. Um, that carried with me up to know when I went back to Ohio, I still hadn't gotten used to going to meetings. And then, then I really struggled to do it. Um, but it turned out it was just that MRSA infection going around my brain. That's what was causing all the adrenaline rushes. It had nothing to do with my my mind or anything. And it turned out the Ativan and the lorazepam were actually causing a lot of my panic disorder and anxiety symptoms, you know. And it wasn't the full body adrenaline stuff. It was just these panic attacks. And, uh, you know, I got real isolated and didn't go out much and, um, so yeah, I cut down and I, I barely went to meetings for a long time and I isolated severely. I mean, it was just bad. I, the depression up in Ohio was terrible. Like I said, I went through that whole thing with the, the ex-wife cancer and you know, my kids suffering through all that. And I was just in a really dark, bad place. And uh, I finally started going to some face-to-face -face meetings and feeling comfortable there. I was able to sit through a whole meeting without you know freaking out and getting up and leaving. And, um, and then COVID happened. And somebody texted me and said, hey, check out the Zoom meeting from your old home group. And home group I got sober at back in 95. I was like, oh, it'd be great to see those guys. So I loaded Zoom and went there. And and they turned me on to this uh, free thinking meeting that was every day at noon and nine. And I got active there. And, you know, the, one of the first couple meetings I went to on Zoom, this lady was sharing and I started getting upset with her. I was feeling empathy. And I was like, man, this is the real deal. This fucking Zoom thing could really work because I'm feeling this. Even though we're on screens and thousands of miles apart, I'm feeling just like I'm in a meeting with her, you know? And, uh, like, and, you know, it's not for everybody, but I took the Zoom like fucking a duck to water. I just really loved it here. And now I got friends all over the world. And, and you know, we, we used to hang out for hours during the pandemic. We would, we'd go to four to five meetings a week or a day on Zoom. And then we'd hang out all night. I talked to Mark one night, and you know, I watched the sun come up in Ireland, and he watched the sunset in Ohio. <laughs> um, and it's just been, you know, and it was just what I needed because I really needed to get my thinking straight. So going to lots of meetings and just bombarding my disease with fucking recovery, and I got my thinking back to that good old A feeling, and that's what I've been feeling lately. It's just that I've been picking up my meetings a lot lately, and I've been feeling better. Um, and I really think that's something I forget about. It's like the more meetings I go to, the better I feel. And, um, and that, that's the only thing I can pinpoint this latest upswing on. Because I still suffer with depression and low self-esteem and shame. And um, it's like I'm a prisoner of shame, you know. I just realized that recently. And, um, and I've been able to look at a lot of stuff, you know, from my childhood. And, um Maybe stuff I'm still carrying that's that's hurting me, that's that's keeping me from going out and getting a job again. Um, but I really have no interest in a career or anything. You know, I've had jobs where I made six figures and and did really good, and then uh, 
you know, I was happy mopping floors, you know. I I really was, to be honest, I really was happy mopping floors. And uh I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. I'm just here and I just keep waiting for the next um direction, I guess, or adventure, next chapter of my life. Uh, I know my daughter's happy I'm here and I'm helping her and my granddaughter and and I can't say enough about my great grandson. He is just a fucking joy. Here's a good example. One one of my theories and things, just totally off topic. My daughter brought her truck over because she needed her brakes done. I'm changing her brakes on the front, you know, and I took the tire off of lug nuts and they're all sitting on the ground. And, and I'm, you know, halfway under it doing the brakes and up comes my great grandson. And he picks up a lug nut and he puts it on the lug. He threads it on. He didn't see me take him off. He just knew that it, it went on there. And I was like, are you seeing this, my daughter? And I was like, this is genetic information that got passed on from me to him. And from, you know, because I've been mechanical all my life. And it's just a gift I just was blessed with. You know, I drove my mom crazy. I was taking apart hair dryers when I was a kid. Just I was always taking shit apart. And, uh, and I, that must come from my genetics because, you know, I never, like, had any training or anything. Um, they did test me one time in Columbus. I was living in Columbus, and uh, somehow I got wrapped up in this school bus mechanic job for the state of Ohio. And uh, so they had me, like, take a test before they gave me the job. And he said, you did better than 80% of the people that took this test. And, you know, I had never been trained in any of that shit, you know. I just... It just always made sense to me. And, um, and that, you know, just to witness that, and I've seen it in animals too, like my dogs. I raise dogs, not professionally. I just like to have puppies. And um, so I had this brother and sister, um, actually Huck's dad, my dog's dad, at, at my old house in, in the country. And uh, they were hunting this groundhog. And they, they worked as a team without ever being trained. It's like they instinctively knew how to hunt that groundhog. And they were signaling each other and just the whole pro I watched the whole thing start to finish. And I was like, that's all genetics, man. That's no training. That's just all genetics. It's in their genes. They have that information. So I'm a big believer in this whole genetic um, transferring of knowledge or experience because I've, there's lots of things in my life where I felt like I've done it a hundred times the first time I did it. I was like, it's just my brother let me fly his plane. I was like, man, I feel like I've been doing this my whole life. It just came natural. Um, same thing with motorcycles. It's it's just, yeah, <laughs> had some crazy times on motorcycles. Anyways, um, yeah, I guess I really needed to talk. I don't know how. So yeah, now I set this phone out here so I know how long I'd talk. Okay, forty five minutes. I've gone way longer than that. Let me tell you, I, I let uh leave on like Friday one time for an hour and a half. And uh, that was an old school traditional AA meeting, and uh, and I kept apologizing for it. And it was it was my second first lead, so I gave my first lead, and then I was gone, and I came back, and these are all the people I got sober with, you know, seven years prior. They were all still there. They just you know they didn't leave and go out and start drinking. They stayed in meetings and got new cars and new houses and better relationships. And I was out destroying my life, you know, and uh, and they. I just felt like I, I needed to apologize to all of them and explain it all. And they're like, you just had a lot to say, Frank. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm very understanding. 
Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for finding AA and that AA was ever formed. It's just, it's amazing that, that they were able to figure this shit out because I was fucking lost and uh, I, I couldn't come up with this on my own. It's like I say that at meetings a lot. It's like I would sit home and, you know, I'd go to meetings, like discussion meetings, and I'd say, man, I don't think about this stuff on my own. It's like I, don't, I can't sit on the couch at home and think these good, positive recovery thoughts. They just don't come to me. Um, it's not it's not how my brain works. So I need to go lots of meetings and get my head right. And it's, it's almost like a subconscious thing. So effortless. So yeah, I hope I helped somebody. And uh, thank Donnie for asking me to lead. Uh, it's actually pretty comfortable here tonight. So that worked out well. Um, thanks, everybody. Good to see all my friends. Thank you for coming for the support. And uh, I run a meeting on Sunday, Tusnua, at 1 o'clock Eastern. It's a check-in meeting. It's like the evolution of AA. So please join us if you want. If not, I'll show. Thanks, everybody.